With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. Yes. Welcome to Race Treaty this evening. It's uh, 8-28-2015, and we're glad to have back Dr. Vanelia Randall uh, to discuss her recent trip uh, to Vienna, I believe, or Geneva, uh, the UPR. Go ahead, Dr. Randall. Yes. Uh, thank you for having me here, Rob, and I appreciate being on with you and uh and all the work you do on on him on a uh, on third and human rights and the trip was this past this summer it was in uh June no I'm getting confused May. it was in May yes end of May uh that uh, the United States went before uh had its universal periodic review and for people who don't know what that is. The United Nations has a process where they review every country every year, every three years to see how they are doing towards implementing the the human human rights in their country. So the United States has been through that that process, and I uh, attended uh, and participated in uh, a side session that was conducted by uh, the International uh, Human Rights Association for American Minorities on saving HBCUs as a human rights issue, and I spoke on the school-to-prison pipeline. Um, And the working report from the group and the recommendations have come out. Of course, the United States has done very little to advertise uh, uh, this responsibility and what uh, has happened with it. In fact, uh, isn't uh, the president or the White House supposed to respond in September? Isn't it obligatory on their part to respond? To the UPR. That's, exactly, that's exactly right. They have to respond. They have to say 
you know, what they plan to do, how they respond to the recommendations that was put forth, and and what they plan to do uh, in relationship to this response. Uh, and and uh, so we'll wait. You know, we should be hearing in September the U.S. response. Uh, they had a meeting in uh, a uh, a meeting for NGOs in D.C. back in July, and I attended the meeting. And I thought it was going to be a meeting that was going to tell their response, but it ended up uh, being a meeting more about where they just let. Uh, people articulate uh, what you know what they thought the United States should do, and so we, I learned I learned very little uh, about what the United States uh, plan to do or how they plan to respond to it. The biggest thing that came out of that is uh, a clear uh, emphasis by many states that the United States should remove its reservations from, should sign the treaties they haven't signed. And there's a, uh, we are not the leaders in the world on human rights. And there are a lot of human rights treaties we haven't signed. The children's treaty. concerning the We children. haven't signed the children's treaty, rights of children's uh, treaty. And I think pri- primarily because uh, our position is that, and when I say our, I'm talking about the governmental position. Federal, the government, yes. the federal government position is that um, they don't want to sign treaties that might impede. They're like every other state. They don't want to have to do anything related to human rights that they don't want to do. And so uh, the big issues is they they may sign on to these treaties, but then they don't ratify it. For instance, most people would think that we're such leaders on racial discrimination. But the treaty that uh, uh, the Convention on Elimination on All Forms of Racial Discrimination, we did not uh, ratify. We signed on to it in '66, but we didn't ratify it until '93, I believe it was. Under '95, I thought under Clinton. That's right, '95 under Clinton, and then part of the tr- uh, part of the convention, part of third convention, is that you have to make an immediate report and then a report every few years. We have not done that. Uh, we didn't do our first report for five years until the uh, the uh, uh, conference. Oh, the uh-huh. World Conference uh-huh. on uh-huh. eliminate uh, on uh, racism. Uh, that's when we did our first. Well, the U.S. Uh, the-, the U.S. Uh, walked out. Let's let's remind. Um, the audience that there was a international conference, the first in Durban, and um, some weeks after uh, that conference, before it could get any traction, 
911 uh, happened and it all but evaporated as uh, a potential movement thereafter or any focus on the U.S. in reference to having but walked out? The U.S. walked out of it, never participated in it, and still refuses to acknowledge it. And every administration, Clinton, uh, the two Bushes, and Obama, they have all taken the basic same stance when it comes to the elimination of racial discrimination in this country. We have the best laws in the world, and so mm -hmm. there's really nothing we need to do uh, because we have such a strong legal system. That's one of their stance. The other stance is uh, we we don't provide any more rights for our people than constitutionally required, and so we uh, and so that's you know so we're they limit what the treaty can do by the constitution, but the constitution actually says that treaties are the law of the land. So in fact, if they were going to uh, really obey the Constitution, they would say, uh, we sign these treaties and based on the Constitution of the United States, they become the law of the land. I want to interject one thing, not in contention, but the United States Constitution lacks uh, social and economic rights and Absolutely. you might want to respond to that as a as a lawyer but my understanding is i don't see the guarantees for social and economic rights and i've i've read up on reports on this as you know our constitution is not the best constitution in the world we might think so because we're under that framework but the fact that that the us would uh, undergo these uh, measures to uh, sidestep this obligation to international law by meanwhile be the watchdog of the world's uh, despots on uh, uh, violations. And we do have a precedent, I hope you uh, come to speak on also, about the utilization of international human rights law as relates to the Convention Against Torture by the City Council in Chicago. Uh, that has really uh, opened my my uh, uh, encourage my uh, thinking and feelings that there's potential that this could be duplicated as a model elsewhere, even enactment of CERD as we follow Jackson uh, Rising in Jackson, Mississippi. But that to well, me, that link was was an amazing precedent. I mean, I'd like you to speak to that too. Well, it's, it's two good points you make there. But first of all, and I when I was teaching. Uh, uh, in fact, it was actually my gender in the law course where I made this point the most, which is that there are absolutely no substantive rights in the United States Constitution. None. No right to education, no right to housing, no right to food, no right to anything. And you really don't even have a right to life. Uh, people think about that. They say, well, we have a right to life, liberty. No, not by the Constitution. You have the right to process. The government can take your life and take your property as long as they engage in an appropriate process. People always say, well, we have a right to free speech. No, you have a right to not have the government interfere in your speech. 
you don't have a right to say anything you want under our constitution. There is, and so there are no hard and fast substantive rights in the United States Constitution. But that, if the United States was really a, 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 or there's nothing in it that prohibits it, though, either. Meanwhile, that um, is what's utilized. When they sign, just like, well, just uh-huh, the point. Ahead. When they sign these treaties, when they sign these treaties, the those treaties are not in conflict with the Constitution, uh, uh, except to the effect that we interpret them as being in conflict, because the Constitution actually says that treaties become the law of the land. And so the United States basically says, well, we're not, we are not going to implement any of these treaties if they go against any of the laws as we currently interpret them. And the, the specific example is uh, the, the third uh, the destruction the, of white supremacy is what it amounts to, and they're afraid of that. It seems to me, and the low, the big picture of it is that if they're not willing to comply, while they have violations in the headlines daily under human rights, uh, uh, under the human rights uh, legal framework, I'm talking about police brutality and extrajudicial killings and other violations in all areas of people activity. See, this is the thing about the U.S. government, in my opinion, anyway, as referencing civil rights, is they're not dealing with the whole spectrum and the impact of racism. They're only dealing with, uh, in terms of the areas of people activity, I'm referring to education and other areas. It seems like those protections uh, don't apply to economics. They don't apply to social rights. Uh, and, you know, our civil rights have been eroded and privacy rights have been eroded. And so we're relying on a framework that seems to me to be tilting over. It's not a stable framework. We have the international framework. The human rights laws are more protective. And can we get to an enforcement of those laws from a grassroots level? And I'm saying that's possible as a precedent was set within the city council of Chicago to enact international law and enact, uh, as, as uh, Jackson, Mississippi uh, has, uh, human rights law and framework. And so, you know, you and I discussed the possibility of CERB being acted locally, and I saw the power of that in Chicago. Um, no, that's absolutely, I mean, I think that's, in our current political climate, the only way that we're going to get these treaties to have force of law is for them to be in, enacted as municipal ordinances. This is where uh, Black Lives uh, Matter come in also. That, 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 that yeah. <laughs> it's one of the things they could do on every local level is to get work on getting CERD adopted as a municipal ordinance. Then within the city limits of whatever jurisdiction you are in, you would have the legal protections of the Human Rights Treaty. I okay. I but see. that, that is, that is, that, that's what's needed because when the federal government has already taken a stance of we are not going to enforce these human rights. There was no use of talking to them about enforcing them because they're not going to enforce them. Well, States I have, don't go ahead, have, Doctor. 
<laughs> Sorry. States don't have an incentive to enforce them. Um, now, some more liberal states, you might end up getting it passed. But I think the place to start, I think you're exactly right. I think the place to start with this is in local, municipal, city, and towns. And that people somehow, we have to, and this is what's so important about your work, because I think that people are not educated enough about these treaties and about how they could be made into law and thus uh, provide themselves with human rights protection. That said, though, I do think that one of the recommendations coming that many other countries came out with is that the United States needs to remove its reservations from these treaties. The, the United States, the way the United Nations works is, is that, that they are limited in the enforcement of the treaties to the extent that the state limited. And the United States has put in every tr- human rights treaty that uh, they won't allow uh, the citizens to have access to the complaint process Right. That is in the treaty itself. It, and it, so we're, go ahead. I was going to say it just relegates it to a protocol process and with no leverage beyond shaming. And that's relying upon media for that even to, to spread the word. Meanwhile, you know, the U.S. doesn't respond. There's no headline coverage of this uh, or the violations as framed from a human rights lens, which is something I think that journalism and citizen journalism needs to take on as much as uh, Black Lives Matter. You know, uh, uh, I, I scope the, the headlines every day, the newswire every day on human rights, and very few articles come up about human rights and human rights violations inside the U.S., you know, and, and so from that perspective, um, I think that we need to call on different forces beyond just uh, uh, the national. And as I always say, on the municipal and local, I agree um, with you. We have 700 cities in the country that are minority dominated. And what's what I wanted to ask you are two more things. One is about the national plan that we had discussed when we were uh, starting that third task force, and that came out of it with the U.S. Human Rights Network, and we kind of got dropped and, and uh, just dispersed, and you took on the efforts with the uh, the uh, alternative shadow report. But there was in there a, uh, a outline for a national plan that we thought could uh, 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 follow the UPR and that possibly could be embraced because it seems confrontational uh, with the United States uh, facing up to its violations of human rights and not making quick work to make adjustments on its own volition. And and, and, and it's not even about the shaming process, uh, in, in my opinion. It's about a national plan to deal with a construct that has shown all of the disparate. We haven't even gotten to the out, disparate outcomes issue, which is post-traumatic stress disorder and all the other maladies associated with living under a negative energy grid called white supremacy. So, you know, the, there, the U.S. could be open to education uh, in law enforcement, which I think Dr. Mustafa Ansari is involved in training human rights monitors and defenders 
and well, uh, opening up uh, a way of training the U.S. But my feeling was that the, the law, as, as clear and protective as it is without the reservation, still needs to be framed with an undoing or a systems analysis on white supremacy. Because while our people are ignorant of, of human rights laws, we, we seem to be ignorant of the systemic institutional racism framework vis-a-vis -vis the, the, the laws that, that we're supposed to embrace and live under, human rights. Well, I mean. and, and that's a whole, that's right. The, the issue is, is that, that the human rights framework gives us a better framework for arguing for, uh, 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 human rights, for things that people ought to have. But it doesn't necessarily dismantle white supremacy. It doesn't in and of itself right. dismantle white supremacy. That's a separate and independent issue from enforcing human rights. Well, that's also so. It's, uh, so, so, so you you can there could be enforcement of human rights that it that's done in a way to maintain white supremacy. Yes, and that is the crux. As we get back to the fulcrum of white supremacy, racism, which is anti-black racism, and and you know the statistical. Well, I you know I I want not to shift subjects, but I noticed uh, a very uh, powerful movement going on within the LGBT community under the banner of human rights law, and one of the uh, the. I think an advantage in seeking allies into enacting CERD in municipal law is that it's intersectional. Those human rights laws are intersectional in their embracement and definition and protection. So that, right. is, a, that is a motivation that is cross-cultural, the oppressed in general uh, need to embrace this law uh, and try to enact it. And, and it seems to me a motivating uh, point to, to do some models, do some campaigns. And I was hopeful that, that, uh, Black Lives Matter had a, uh, adjunct uh, gathering in DC. What was it? Law for Black Lives Matter? Uh, yeah, I happened, I was, I was not able to attend it. I'm hoping that I can get connected up to it. But I was out of the uh, out of uh, had other business at the time. And I could prayed not that whole day, Doctor Randall. I prayed that whole day. I I tell you, because if the conversation concerning the law and these extrajudicial killings and otherwise the maladies of our people under this system of white supremacy, if it, how do you shift the civil rights industry into the human rights lens? And why not this leadership getting a voice uh, beyond the protocol at the United Nations? And, well, the, and prob the problem with shifting the civil rights, the problem, the thing is, is I don't, I guess I'm at a loss because I feel like that, that, uh, the, that institutions have been built around civil rights. Correct. Industry, in Okay. Fact. That's right. There's a civil rights industry. There's Thank a civil you. rights. And people, uh, and people are trained, lawyers at least, are mm -hmm. trained in school about civil rights, but they receive zero training on human rights mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the human rights treaty. 
uh, uh, so, so how so, do we go off that bridge? Because do you have an apparatus in place that needs to be duplicated in some way in a in a in mass? You it know, may be that we, you know, the thing is, and I. I, and, and this is for you, for younger people than younger than me to get involved in. But it's time to really stop trying to get the civil rights industry to change their focus and just start a human rights like you're doing. Just there needs to be the development, just like of a human rights. Well, there's human rights commissions can be enacted locally also that have a different framework to put police into accountability and otherwise under community reviews and otherwise protect its citizens from these human rights violations that are going on. One of the things that the United States doesn't do that leads, that gives to our problem, and it's done deliberately to avoid the maintenance, to, to avoid having to deal with human rights is they don't do human rights. They don't fund human rights education and they're supposed to. That's the United the States has no uh, federal mechanism for the funding and the education of its populace about human rights and human rights treaties. And under every one of the treaties, that's part of their obligation. And they just don't do it. What uh, can we do in in reaching out to, for a critical mass and, and really making the conversation about human rights? Because what I understand from my experience in Occupy in this anti-corporate you know, setup is that CERD and these human rights laws actually put these corporations into accountability also if it's enacted locally. And, you know... Yeah. My thought was like my first thought was, man, Ferguson to St. Louis. If St. Louis was to enact CERD, they'd have Monsanto's ass. Excuse my expression, yeah. but, but no, the- that's right. And 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 I mean, I mean, the process. You know, I we talked about this, and there's got to be someone with the energy to I don't know begin the process of. Uh, of specifically focus on education on human rights, which is what you're doing through these broadcasts, and identifying a couple, a few cities where it might be relatively easy, and starting a campaign to get it, and then just moving from city to city, uh, help you know developing a campaign to get well. Uh, uh, third enacted our human rights commission. Unfortunately, even cities who have human rights commissions don't always have a a true human rights focus. Well, not, and I was going to speak to that. Nor do they have an, an analysis of institutional racism. And so you well, have them. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's and but see, I, I for me the the. Okay, I see the first step as getting the third implemented. I hear you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then once implemented, you can say, wait a minute, you you can't just 
read that law and think you can implement it in the old way. You got to imp- you got to do uh, uh, yes. uh, institutional systemic racism, uh, white privilege, white supremacy analysis to implementing the law. So to better also understand the requirements of the law and how it's enacted for protection under disparate outcome. The disparate right. outcome are the effects. There's damage being done, which opens up the door to to institutional uh, reparations, in my opinion, for our mental health for us. But in a lot of the spectrums of people activity, we're affected. Uh, uh, and the disparate outcome cannot really be understood without, in my opinion, that analysis or, you know, that training to understand. Uh, how to undo uh, racism within institutions. Um, Dr. Rando, I want to thank you. You gave me a half an hour. I wish we could could go longer. Uh, uh, Very interesting conversation. But I want to get back to Black Lives Matter and that recently they did come out in response to the the, uh, – confrontation, if you want to call it, with Black Lives Matter and Hillary Clinton, where the following week, uh, a documentation for policy change um, that actually had language utilizing a human rights framework, but it was specific to what is just one of the spectrums of white supremacy or or absurd, is uh, the police. But it's in education, it's in health, and you've written a book on on, uh, on the effect in health. The thing is, is that one thing, you know, one of the things I have to say to people is that, okay, when we say Black Lives Matter, then we have to go beyond the police because there are 80 to 100,000 black people dying every year that would not die if we had the same death rate as whites. We are dying from all kinds of things. And it's from living in a racial, a racist society and the, and the impact of chronic stress from racism is killing us. Our, 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 in, our, uh, uh, life expectancy, the, the, and this goes off into the CIA. Central Intelligence Agency on its World Factbook website says that you can measure the quality life of a pe- of a of a country for people in a country by by their life expectancy. Uh huh. So 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 what the CIA says, and that's pretty standard stuff. They're not saying anything that's exceptional there. Okay. So life expectancy at birth is a measure of overall quality of life in a country. Let that sink in a second. Because then when you look at what is happening with black males in the United States, our life expectancy is worse than Barbados, China, Mexico, Dominican Republic, Bahamas. If we were a country, we would be ranked 71 compared to 34 for white males. 
So what does that say? So the quality of life for black males in this country, based on the CIA's definition, is worse than the quality of life for males in Barbados in the Dominican Republic. And the female for black females is the same. Well, you have 64,000 black women missing in this country as well. And, and nobody and, talks about that. And nor the indigenous aboriginal women missing, because I don't really look at it in borders. I look at it as what's going on in Canada as well. The, the women are, are, are disappearing. And what is that about? And and national outcry because these are the mothers, sisters, daughters of the of of these folks being killed by police as well. We have so many missing black men and black women are dying early lives, being killed early, being killed legally through. And I think the police thing is something we have to be outraged about. But well, we have to use that outrage, use that anger and direct it at all of white supremacy, not yeah. just one part of it. I absolutely agree, Doctor. We have to take a break here momentarily, but I did want to say this. I'm going to have to go. Love you. But I'll be happy to come on. And uh, real quick, I am going to be going to a conference in Iran. Uh, to talk about uh, this, these issues of what's happening to black people uh, in the United States. I'm going to be going the end of October. I say, I say. Our, our prayers are with you. Uh, I'd like to be able to follow that. Will Press TV or any uh, media be covering that engagement? Yeah, absolutely. And they're going to, yeah, absolutely. All right. And I will thing. be giving reports from there. Well, I'd like to plug into that. Uh, uh, keep anti-racism media and Black Talk Radio in mind. Thank you for joining us. I also want to say that our guest next week is uh, uh, Reverend Buford, who was in our group, you know, that task force we did uh, right after the U.N. thing. He is right. uh, he's uh, he's preparing the documents to go directly to the world courts here soon. And we're going to be discussing that next week, uh, Friday. He'll be a guest on September 4th on the show and um i like you know hopefully you can hear listen in on that or i'll give you the link on that because things are going on on a lot of levels and and i think we might be just connected in spirit and I, and it's hard keeping up with everybody but he has uh the experience and that he uh made it there and uh under the katrina uh, uh, catastrophe. He went before the United Nations as well, and he knows that whole history and the CERD framework. So he'll be our guest next week. And uh, thank you so much. Uh, okay, thank you. Blessings. Peace. Blessings. Thank you. Bye bye. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network for live programming schedules. Visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Yes, welcome back. Uh, Scott, are you there? Yes, Robin. Sir, I, I, uh, 
my screen isn't up, so I don't know if we have any callers in, in actuality. Um, and <clears throat> yes, we do, um, but none that uh, wants to ask a question. If you do have a question or a comment for Brother Robin tonight, give us a call, 641-715-3660. The participant code is 549032-POUND. And, of course, hit star six and one. Thank you, Scotty. Uh, you know, I wanted to continue the conversation uh, concerning we the protesters and and the sense that uh, Black Lives Matter is starting to understand. And I don't know if it's gone viral yet. But I, I think not. But this human rights lens is the mechanism that gives the most protective language for our human rights and, and for our white allies and our Occupy allies or and our, our First Nation allies who are already ahead of the curve in engaging the UN uh, and what they recognize also under that human rights framework, but that's in their indigenous status is an economic base, which is missing in uh, our rights in the Constitution. But um, the potential man to enact CERD into local law, given the amount of cities, how do we develop a campaign for that? And, and, and um, how do we insert that into our, our conversations and understand that we have the power of the people, something we were born with, and we also have the power of municipal law where we live to enact a whole framework that, that's been waiting for us. And when we say the UN, there's a lot of negative and I understand that, but when I see the UN, I just see majority non-white people as representative of the mm -hmm. world's population, and I feel like like I'm at home. If they have any leverage to help, I'm going to present my case. And so right now, uh, uh, that potential is still within Black Lives Matter, in my opinion. You know what? Go ahead, brother. Well, I was listening to... Um Dr. Randall say we don't have any rights really guaranteed by the Constitution, but it does guarantee one right that is being denied to people of color, uh, non-white people in this country, and that's the Sixth Amendment, which says you have a right to a fair and impartial jury. And because the majority, and I'm speaking science, this isn't an opinion, I'm speaking studies that have been done already that show that um, a majority of white people have implicit bias. They have a lack of empathy, empathy for uh, non-white people. So, you know that. So, if, yes, it, and so if that's the case, how can you then be providing a fair, you know, an impartial well, jury? You're not. That's, you know, first of all, there's a jury of your peers, and so that's exactly. not broken down properly either because usually we don't have juries representing the community but, you know, something is missing, too, in this whole judicial thing. Ninety-five percent of the, the the ones who really got the lever on this oppression are the prosecutors. Ninety-five percent of the prosecutors in America are white, okay? So, you know, look at it systemically. It's not just that police with a badge acting out and killing folks. It's somebody in policy and institution within that institutional uh, infrastructure that allows that. And there's connections and a power uh, uh, hierarchy, if you will. And so I hold the system culpable. I hold the system culpable uh, because th there's no response, and I'm talking federal government, uh, requirement to have all the data and statistics on police killings. The actual, the most, uh, uh, and most recently, that was initiated by the Guardian newspaper in England. 
And so without this data, which you need for disparate outcomes under international law, without this data collection requirement by law, because civil rights ain't requiring it. <laughs> I mean, so, but they are collecting the data. I mean, I was just reading articles last week about the uh, racial uh, uh, problems in the jury selection process and whatnot. And so, you know, this is, you know, like y'all mentioned, and I do agree with Dr. Randall, it's got to move beyond just the police. You know, it's got to, you know, not only be health, but just, you Comprehensive. know. Yeah, but in the criminal justice system, it's more than just the police you got to worry about. That jury, you know. and That and judge, so, brother, that judge. That judge. And he, so I feel like, and, and in on the website, uh, Join Campaign Zero, uh, dot com, which is, uh, you know, the split off group from the, uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, but right. they're still Black Lives Matter activists. I, you know I, what I'm I saying? I see. I'm hip to it. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so they're using that human rights language, but then they also ask for implicit bias screening in the hiring practices of officers. Now, you know, I took that further to say we need that screening process as well in jury selection and what. Well, I'm going to take it one more further and say that we need in the law to include the present day data from science to as and make adjustments in the law based on today's science. The law is fixed, stagnant and and and, and antiquated in in not considering factors such as implicit bias, but even Johnny come lately with the Supreme Court now embracing the disparate outcome versus intentionality because that that uh, sham has been busted, really, and that's what the civil rights thing has been framed on, um, proving uh, intentionality in discrimination cases. And so as they move even in those two spectrums of uh, uh, areas of uh, education or employment and housing, what is it, employment and housing that applies to in civil rights protection, it should be applied in all areas of people activity, and we haven't gotten to that point under civil rights. So there's potential in that disparate outcome, but what are they going to be doing in terms of compliance with that disparate outcome? What are they going to do in response? Oh, just award money or, or, or punitive damage to the, the perpetrator? What about the change systemically? You know, and that's kind of like been my focus is that, uh, 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 across the board, man, across the board, if less, uh, human rights law, uh, is framed in our language, in our, in our protection, in our representation, uh, we're going in circles with civil rights. I mean, I, I, I really, you know, I'm, I'm not critical. I'm supportive of uh, moral Mondays in response to, uh, you know, the reversal of, our, of the voting rights process. But that was to be expected. It's violation of human rights. So why are we, you know, going to the and saying, look at this, you know, they don't even mind their own law. We have we have a basis for a class action lawsuit in international courts. In fact, uh, corporations are going into international courts now and setting up their presence there along with their so-called human rights. Isn't that something? They're embracing human rights based on personif- uh based on the uh, personhood under the 14th Amendment. So they've taken it to the next level and preparing to sue governments in, you know, uh, based on human rights, uh, their human rights being violated as a corporation as they, 
you know, go through the globalist process because of these multi-corporations function in a lot of other countries. So they're, they're stymieing any response on the people, uh, the victims of oppression in other uh, countries at the hands of these corporations. So they need to be put in check as well, and they can uh, with through human rights. And so we really need a bone up uh, on 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 the potential of the and 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 infest these movements. But you know what? People have to see that their violations and their human rights being violated. They need to see how they can get to the international court. How they can go into that stream where their voice is heard and they have a a a belief and a faith and a mechanism that's going to possibly bring back justice and enforcement uh, in a stronger way uh, uh, in holding these systems and these institutions uh, 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 accountable for upholding racism. And I'm talking, you know, that comes when I say institutions, that's black folks functioning in a professional capacity as proxy races, holding up the status quo. As the saying goes, you know, uh, most black folks really ain't worried about uh uh, uh, just manly white supremacy. They're just worried about getting a better, uh, uh, position in it. And so that is a dynamic that plays out with a disparate outcome in the mental health, uh, 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 factor and that we need institutions to address that, uh, as part of our reparations package, in my opinion. But, uh, so Scotty, uh, I, I noticed also that you, you've been checking out, uh, uh, not only the human rights uh, being uh, uh, used in the language of this uh, policy uh, uh, generated by We Protest, how do you feel about it uh, and its potential within the, uh, and this abolitionist thing falls under the human rights also because we want to dismantle that 13th Amendment and that, that whole slavery process, which is a, a institution, but them shuffling the shell uh, uh, and from privatization where they've already got contracts for 80% uh, uh, occupancy and they, and if any law that uh, Bernie or anybody else try to do to end uh, the private, it would come after these contracts and their next round of negotiations in that relationship. They're not going to cut into that contract. So we don't even know how long those contracts are. So, you know, people have an idea, talk a good talk, but the, the process uh, may take years before those contracts expire. So I'm saying, how do we get to the international course? And there are some paths. And uh, our guest next week will be outlining um, how he uh, uh, traversed the, uh, the United Nations uh, process and maze. He'll also uh, reinforce the need for us to start understanding how this thing works in terms of getting our voice, because he's going with a small contingency, but he's going because he's had the experience before as an individual to uh, to model the documentation and also, as I said, traverse the, the mechanisms within the UN to land in the world court. In fact, his document was used by the United Nations in uh, the uh, periodic review. So that said, I'm kind of running out of things to say uh, this evening, man. I, I've had a long day. Oh, what about that Obama piece, though? Um, he talking reforms now, talking about reforming mandatory sentences, but not talking about abolishing the drug war. You know, man, and, on, and I kind of feel on. like I want to go there with that, man. <laughs> you know, we we get we get low hanging fruit uh, in terms of action 
by the system. Uh, listen, you have the President of the United States vocally saying in the press and in public uh, after the Charleston killings, I want these KKK's membership made public. Now, I haven't heard a peep from any politician, Congress, or otherwise rallying around the quotes and, and, and the statements made with the insight that, that he understands that opens up the door for defining this group as a terrorist organization in which it is. Because you at think this that point, they're the harboring a terrorist, an internal uh, 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 a terrorist organization. They harbor uh, uh, not only one, but, but many. You think that was the intent of his statements? Because I was thinking, you know, what good is it to know what you think you're going to shame these people into not supporting the Klan? And no, I think you're going to see that that if it was done and they got the NSA right there to do it, uh, he probably already read the exactly. report. They're embedded in the politics, the police force, the, the political, uh, local political uh, mechanisms in the South. You know, that would, so it would cut into the whole structure. You know, I don't think they're just, uh, you know, out in the woods, you know, meeting. I think they operate in suits. Oh, of know? course. We know they embedded in the police departments. We right. know they embedded in the criminal. So throughout. that would be yeah. the implication if it was made public, in my okay, opinion. I understand. You know, yeah. But I think, you know, um, <laughs> Why play games? Just designate them as a domestic terrorist group. And then then you can just totally go after them, just like how well, you they, go after... They're obligated to do that, brother. Under some law, that by the definition of the FBI, they're obligated to go after them under that premise. And, and, and I don't understand why there's no movement towards that. You know, and, and, and certainly uh, uh, as relates to human rights, it's the same thing. U.S. could uh, adhere to right. a contract and a treaty that they signed. They could adhere to the constitutional framework of this country, which says treaties are supreme law of the land. They could. All right. They could uh, uh, understand and, and, and embrace the science of today as relates to the maladies that we face in the system. Uh, uh, that's implicit bias is being one from the social sciences, you know. But they don't factor in 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 the legal process. The the laws aren't, aren't you know, or adherence to the law uh, isn't based on that framework. So you know, when you start looking at the law, it looks really dry. It looks really dry without the analysis of white supremacy. It looks dry, you know, without bringing in the sciences of today you know, as factors in the law because it should evolve, but it's a static, antiquated uh, framework set up to uh, uphold white supremacy. Huh. That's how that works here. And so, I mean, international law, human rights, we have that right. I think that our people need to understand that, that there's a lot of folks that are working on high levels um, but that's the protocol, and I don't want to call it pump and circumstance. I want to say that grassroots folks, if it gets caught up in the Black Lives Matter movement and, and, and they understand that the power uh, uh, of enforcement uh, comes through an international framework, sidestepping all this local yoko nonsense that ain't worked to date, including holding hands, singing kumbaya and marches, you know, while they're trying to curtail voting rights. And, you know, um, 
where I'm at in the city I'm in uh, presently, they have uh, a, a doctor, a brother who sociology department who did a report in all areas of pe people activity in the city from economic uh, for African Americans. It's called the State of Black Asheville. Uh, housing. So the report, businesses, uh, uh, health, employment, judiciary, and all the statistics gleaned from that shows that the population is in fact uh, uh, being depopulated with a plan. And they know how to select individuals, proxy races, uh, uh, people of color to man these positions that they see no further than the fact that they're holding a job and the mission of that organization or, or job requirement. But in the long picture, uh, they're depopulating the black community here uh, while they still hide the uh, in the media. I talked to a brother today from here was unaware that uh, the founder of this area, uh, uh, Zebulon Vance, was one of the founders of the KKK, governor mm. of North Carolina. Right. It's documented. It's documented. Meanwhile, they've got this, you know, obelisk in the middle of downtown. And the local uh, newspaper writes articles like this is a monument to tolerance. And so they've got everybody bamboozled because they don't even read their own history. They've done such a great job of masking and, and subjugating truth, you know, uh, that it's, it's, it's gotten to the point where it's just blatant, you know. Um, and so my thing is that, that white supremacy functions in all these areas, so there's these multiple fronts in which we have to act. And, and for our protection and, and, and continuation of existence as a people. And we have to do it systemically. It's a unified field against us. We have to come together as a unified field, not keep fracturing off uh, uh, issues, although many are all important from health to the judicial to the prison to economics, which are, again, not, uh, uh, not part of this Constitution. You have no economic rights in this country. You have no social rights as accordance with the Constitution at any rate. It's not in there. And so, you know, I see this human rights framework and, you know, people say, well, it's the New World Order, the UN is this and that. If we don't get in there to, to represent our own interests, then we're going to be stuck in, in the turf and inside the framework of white supremacy and they're egging on race wars and they don't know how to do you know, false flags. And so they've got all these social levers that are being utilized, including the media. Uh, uh, and now we're in the midst of this campaign. And, and you know, Black Lives Matter has gone a long way in confronting it, but I've never seen a president that has a national plan to undo racism or even adhere to international law concerning racism and discrimination. And so um, I'm not about racism as a feeling, uh, and I'm not about uh, approaching it in one special uh, section of it because it exists in all areas. And we need to take on that framework that addresses that. And that's a human rights framework. And on that note, man, you know, I'm in the show tonight. I'm very excited to have uh, Reverend Dan Buford uh, from Oakland on this coming week. And uh, we look forward to seeing you then. Peace. Because they never want to meet him on the back. What a job.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.